9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf. I'm here in New York City, also with us, as every Thursday in New York City, uh, is Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School and Just Security. How are you doing, Ryan? Pretty well, David. Thanks. Great. And we are joined by uh, old friend Asharan Gappa, who is a senior lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and a commentator on CNN. How are you, Asha? I'm good, David. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And we may or may not have Kavita join us as she always does on Thursdays, but she is standing by for breaking news uh, and so has to be uh, awaiting a call uh, for, for TV appearance. Uh, but let's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we can talk about that falls more into the realm of what you guys focus on on a daily basis, uh, ranging from potential appointments to the Attorney General to this uh, looming. And I, I dare not say it's the last big case in the president's 51 or 52 and or one in 52 uh, losing streak of cases. But this Texas case where 17 other states have uh, supported Texas and their desire to get the Supreme Court to overturn the elections in um, four uh, uh, contested states where just so happens that Donald Trump lost. Um, Asha, what do you think is the significance of this case, both in terms of the context of the current cycle and more broadly? Wow, that's a big question. Ryan and I were discussing this just before the show started. I mean, I... Look, the legal merits, there there are none there. So I don't even know that it's worth, you know, parsing these uh, specious legal arguments. I think it's just, for me, this is a harbinger of, of very bad times ahead. Um, this is really about not recognizing basic principles of democracy. Um, and, you know, clearly people who are willing to overturn, you know, the fundamental tenet, which is the vote um, in favor of, you know, partisan interests. And I mean, I'm not really sure how we're going to recover from this um, moving forward. Now, on the other hand, I will say that I think that in many ways, the fact that since the election was called for Biden. The fact that the the recourse has been to go to the courts is a good thing, right? That um, you know it, it wasn't a wink and a nod for people to come out in the streets and try to engage in armed insurrection. Okay, so I mean, let me just say the bar is very low here. That I'm thankful that that didn't happen and that instead they were filing lawsuits um, because. It does, it has allowed, like number one, it's basically utilizing at least a democratic avenue, which is the independent judiciary, but it's also given the opportunity for courts, state courts, federal courts, uh, courts in multiple jurisdictions to just reiterate over and over and over again that, that this was a, a free and fair election uh, and that Biden won. What I am concerned about is what is going to happen when the end of the line is reached and the Supreme Court in, invariably says no go, then what? Because at that point you get the ultimate test of whether we live in a country of the rule of law, which is you, you respect the legitimacy of the outcome. Um, and I'm not really sure what's going to happen uh, at that point. Ryan, what do you think? I mean, Asha brings up a good point. And, you know, the president yesterday tweeted out something that looked an awful lot like uh, uh, invitation to violence. The Arizona Republican Party has tweeted out things about, uh, you know, uh, you know, 
we are what we're willing to die for kind of, uh, again, inflammatory uh, stuff, which suggests that losing one more court case may not be the end of this. What do you think? I share the same views as Asha to a great extent. Um, <clears throat> and that maybe the court cases are in some ways delaying uh, this potential catastrophic um, turn to the streets. If Trump, you know, I think it's, I think we're like one tweet away from Trump saying, come on second amendment people defend against the stop the steal. One tweet away from that, um, which could be obviously calamitous. And I also agree with what Asha said about there's something uh, relieving about the fact that they went to the courts first, at least, or have gone primarily through a litigation strategy in the sense that I even think of it in a paradoxical way. There's scholarship about how lawyers um, can de-radicalize social movements and have in some ways undermined civil rights <laughs> by legalizing strategies and professionalizing strategies. And I think that actually might even have been having an effect on this uh, potential domestic violence that would otherwise be in its place. Um, at the same time, their legal strategy is part of their uh, disinformation strategy. Um, and we could talk a little bit more about that. But as Asha said, like the case by Texas in the Supreme Court has no legal merit, but that's not the point. The point is not whether or not it has legal merit, it's how it feeds um, their PR campaign. And then I guess I'll just add one more point, which is in terms of how dreadful this, the implications are for our democracy. I do think one of the pieces of this that truly like keeps me up at night is the stop the steal narrative is a narrative that a huge portion of the country believes for the next umpteen years. And it's, and there's that piece that was written in the New York Times, there's an op-ed um, titled 1918 Germany has a warning for America by um, Bittner is the last name of the uh, author. And the idea is that if a narrative like that gains hold, um, it really can radicalize uh, a huge segment of a country. And in that instance, gave rise to fascism. Um, and I, I worry about that. Uh, and the amount of Republicans that elected Republicans that are jumping onto this or supporting this stop the steal disinformation campaign. So let's- Can I just add one thing also of course. to the- to the court strategy. I, I also think that the decision to use the courts, I, I wanna be clear, wasn't some you know, principal decision on behalf of the Trump campaign to you know, respect the, the rule of law and the independent judiciary. On the contrary, I, I think it resulted from a fundamental misunderstanding of basic legal principles and how the court system works and how difficult it is to get a court a case to the Supreme Court. I, I think that Trump was operating on the assumption that perhaps maybe thinking back to 2000 that all he needed to do was contest the result and somehow it would automatically wind up in front of the Supreme Court and there he appointed three of those judges which in his transactional mind means that they owe him a favor and that it would then go his way. I am certain that he is stunned at the string of losses, if if in fact he's even been adequately, you know, told about them, and and he understands that. But I, I just want to be clear that you know I I I wasn't meaning to say that the decision to go to the courts was was somehow principled or noble. I think I think it to our benefit it was just a basic misunderstanding of, of government, but um, it has at least, I think, maintained some sense of the rule of law in the meantime, um, until we get to the end of this road. Well, you know, one of the ways to, to look at this is that the, what Trump is trying to do is a coup. He's trying to use the tools that he as the president has and all these lawyers have uh, to get via means that that you know appear to be legal but actually are contrary to the spirit and the letter of the constitution um you know the voters in four states disenfranchised um and that doesn't seem likely to work i mean i want to say it's not going to work but it doesn't seem likely to work but the other thing that he does no matter what with 50 odd lawsuits and 
barrages of tweets and the statements of essentially every Republican leader in the country, except for a tiny handful, is he casts a shadow of a doubt over this election process. Uh, he casts a shadow of a doubt over Biden's legitimacy. He casts a shadow of a doubt over the legitimacy of his defeat and gives him a grievance to go and use on the road and raise money against on the road. And, you know, this is consistent, um, and I don't think it's entirely an accident, with the whole strategy of disinformation that has been with this team since 2016, since the election. It's consistent with the Russian objectives of spreading disinformation in the United States, which is if, if, if you undermine what people believe, you undermine, you cloud the issue, you make it possible for them to believe what's not true. You open the door for, you know, the kind of movement that we've seen so far. So even if it's a legal failure, it could be a strategic victory. Isn't that true, Ryan? I think that's uh, definitely true. I think that's part of the point of it. And I think some of the cases um, were filed to feed that narrative. Um, so there's like there were one of the cases in Georgia or one of the early cases, I think, affected 56 ballots. <laughs> right? But it gave this impression that um, there was litigation across the country uh, is one of the pieces of it that I think has been devised. And and it's also more difficult. It complicates the truth of the matter, which he's trying. I think it's a, I think of it as a coup. I think of it as extra legal what he's trying to do to hold on to power after having lost an election. But the litigation gives it this patina of legality, legitimacy. Um, so that when people say he's stealing the election, well, I mean, he's stealing the election because he's having his day in court and the narrative that everybody gets to have their day in court or, and, and that it gives, the, it gives cover to uh, Republican senators to say, oh, everybody has the right to file their legal case, which of course others have been sort of, you don't get to, you don't have a right to file frivolous legal cases. Um, but I think that it's uh, mixed up in that uh, for sure. And I do wonder to how many of the people behind this initiative are planning it in a way. And I agree with Asha. I, I think that Trump himself is so clued out on the legal dimensions. I, I forget, I think he, you know, a few years ago, he said something about the Supreme Court bringing a criminal prosecution or something like that. You know, he really does not have a sense of how the court works within even the structure of the judiciary at that most basic level. Um, but some of the other aspects of this seem incredibly devious um, and have been successful. Um, there's a recent poll out that 72% of Republicans think, uh, have 72% uh, of Republicans distrust the election results. Um, and there was an earlier poll of tens of millions of, uh, you know, huge percentage of Trump voters uh, distrust the election results. So there's a part that has become successful. Well, and I think uh, you asked about the people that have been involved in this, and I'm curious your thoughts for both of you. Um, well, for one, uh, Ryan, you tweeted today about uh, the Texas AG who's under FBI investigation. And that, that, that I feel like that needs to be given some attention because this is clearly something that is you know, going to be pleasing and potentially beneficial to the president. Um, and the president is in a position to offer him a pardon. And I think that that's very problematic when you have this kind of uh, effort being led by him. But in general, given the string of losses and just the quality, I mean, just the lack of any evidence, at what point do you... Um, state bar committees, these judges have a role in, you know, because part of the they have their date in court is the fact that these, these cases are being entertained. And at some point, I mean, it's now, where they're now at what, 56 cases? Like, isn't there a judge that's going to say enough is enough? And the, these are, you know, you're bringing into my courtroom just a bunch of crap. And you know, you have a lawyers have a professional and legal duty to not file frivolous cases. I mean, so I'm just I'm I'm wondering when, if ever, there's going to be any repercussions for for the lawyers here. 
because they are helping to give the patina of legality uh, by being willing to to file these and 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 put them forward. So so Ryan, you should respond to that. But when you do, uh, start with where Asha started it because the uh, the Texas Attorney General Paxson. Um, has been accused of crimes throughout his term in office. Uh, seven lawyers, senior lawyers in his office accused him of abuse of office, bribery, and other crimes. Uh, and there is a sense that he may be just fishing for a pardon here. Uh, and he may get it, knowing Trump. So, you know, they're, they're this the corruption here works on many levels. Exactly. That's right. And... Um... This also comes right on the heels of Axios's Jonathan Swan reporting that Trump said to his aides uh, something to the effect that everybody who's talked to me, he's considering giving them a pardon. But in other words, that Trump has a slew of pardons that he's thinking of giving. And for all I know, that was actually leaked to Jonathan Swan so that it is communicated more widely that Trump is in the transactional business of handing out pardons in exchange for favors. and. You know, it's not just us talking about this today. Uh, ben Sass, um, Republican Senator from Nebraska, issued a statement about the Texas uh, petition to the Supreme Court. And he said, quote, I'm no lawyer, but from the brief, it looks like a fella begging for a pardon filed a PR stunt rather than a lawsuit, end quote. So he observes the same phenomena. There's a ridiculous, absurd, suit being filed by the Texas AG who is under criminal investigation by the FBI um, and has other indictments pending. And this is with a president who we have seen is willing to uh, extend pardons for allies and associates and those who do him favors. So we don't know, but it um, smells incredibly fishy. And just to you know, give some additional <laughs> Wait to this, the brief by the Texas Attorney General has factual allegations that are absolutely absurd um, from a different planet. Um, they have somebody who says that it is um, a chance of one out of a quadrillion that the ballots that were coming in for uh, Biden overnight uh, could have been in support of Biden. That one in quadrillion chance that Biden could have won on the basis of that on the assumption that all the ballots coming in late were randomly selected, which everybody in America should know if they were watching TV that night, they're not randomly selected. They were the ballots that were coming in from mail-in ballots, which disproportionately favored Biden, just as one example. Um, and as um, George Conway wrote- And, in the and by the way, and that in some states like Pennsylvania, the Republican lawmakers told them they couldn't start counting them until afterwards, right? So. Yes, knowing that that would be the it would skew in that direction <laughs> for that reason. Well, and, and also that yeah. the Republican leaders and Trump especially was essentially discouraging his supporters from voting by mail. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are actual causative and correlative factors that would uh, make those ballots predominantly democratic. Yeah, yeah. And so, and, and, and as a George Conway wrote in the Washington Post today in, in, a, in a column, you know, to make the argument in a brief to the Supreme Court is insulting to the intelligence of the justices. None of those justices are gonna consume that um, as a valid factual argument, um, let alone the legal arguments. Um, so why is he doing it? And why is he the only one who did it? And he's this person who um, obviously could stand a lot to benefit um, from favors from the president. So I do think that's a real um, concern. And then the other parts of what I just said, I agree as well. I, you know, Rule 11 sanctions are very infrequently given out um, by judges, but surely to goodness, this is that time. Um, and it is, and they are, I think it's one to 55. <laughs> There's their, is their losing streak, one to 55 or one to 56. And the one case that they have won, quote unquote won, deals with a uh, in very small fraction of ballots, so tiny in Pennsylvania that there's no reason, there was no reason for the Biden campaign to even contest them. It would not affect the outcome of the election. That's the one that everybody always talks about, the one to 55, now one to 56. And so if we were to talk statistics, 
<laughs> we want to look right. at statistics. Exactly. Let's get into some statistical analysis here, you know? Yeah. How, how can you file one, file 55 cases, 56 cases and lose 55 of them? Something's going on there. Um, and, and the, you know, the cases that are based on, and, and the judges are throwing them out by actually saying words that are tantamount to frivolous. Like there is no, you have no allegations here that are supported by evidence. So Asha, the president of the United States is doing something we've never seen before. We've gone through a lot as a country. We've had civil wars and we've had um, scandals and corruption and foreign countries trying to destroy us. We've never had a guy come in and say, let's set aside democracy and let's put me in charge. You know, let's 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 let make me a despot, you know, and, and that's kind of stunning. Um, and you could write it off to narcissism or or delusions of grandeur or something like that. But, you know, this works on another level. As as Ryan was 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 saying, the president's talking about giving pardons to oceans of people. Um, and uh, he's used this strategy before to get people to be silent um, uh, in investigations of him. He clearly wants to hold on to office to avoid prosecution. Um, and at the same time, the incoming president seems to be sending messages and some sending some through his aides that, you know, prosecution of Trump is not going to be a top priority, which I, you know, I think might be something that would embolden Trump in this regard. Um, he's about to appoint an attorney general. We're going to learn a lot about sort of what his intention is as he appoints that attorney general. How do we reconcile a president who's doing something so unprecedented is, is seeking to essentially gut the Constitution of the United States with the apparent lack of appetite to go after him for this or any of the other uh, federal crimes he may have committed? Yeah. So I think I'll let me let me play lawyer for Biden right now, if I had to, you know, give his argument, because I do think it's important. Um, you know, Biden is coming in, presumably he has an ambitious agenda. He wants to fight COVID. He has economic issues he wants to tackle. And because Trump is Trump, he understands that if his Justice Department begins to investigate or prosecute Trump, that is going to eclipse everything in his presidency for years. Uh, not only is that going to be what, you know, are, are those cases going to be what gets covered because it's basically the Trump circus all the time in the media, um, but then his own administration is going to help perpetuate the uh, witch hunt narrative um, as something that is being carried over from the Obama administration. It's going to help solidify in the minds of Trump supporters that the Biden, uh, sorry, the Obama administration was in fact trying to uh, sabotage Trump. I mean, so, you know, it, it, it will also move backwards in many ways and not allow us to move forward. And I think, um, you know, and then there's always the kind of more overarching ideas of, you know, does it help or harm a nation to go after a president for the crimes committed? And this is sort of the the considerations that Nick that uh, Ford had about Nixon about do we want to put the country, you know, through this or do we kind of resolve this as he comes out? So I think I just want to put out like these are the concerns, and I think that an incoming AG, uh, who I I would hope is uh, interested in restoring the independence of the DOJ and more importantly, restoring the perception of independence of the DOJ from the White House might share some of those concerns. One thing that I think is worth putting out here, and this is something that I kind of discussed in a, in a previous podcast and, and have been more convinced of through that discussion and as I thought about it, is that the benefit of our, you know, the, of, of federalism is that we also have the option for states to pursue charges against Trump. And it may be worth considering whether we can achieve some of the interests of justice 
by allowing states to pick up the baton. And particularly I'm thinking here, the state of New York and moving forward with investigations or prosecutions, which would unburden the Biden administration and his justice department from some of these competing tensions and, and, and concerns. Ryan, uh, would you like to make the counter argument or do you just want to join onto the Biden legal team here and <laughs> support Asha's argument? And I want to say, I, this is not necessarily, I don't know that I fully am on board with, with this view. I'm just, I'm trying to articulate if I had to the best argument that he can make for it. I, Absolutely. I don't, yeah. and, and you did that well. And you're now on the attorney general list. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's very hard uh, in a sense, like there are a lot of difficult um, variables. So, and, and I think, I think I also am in this, maybe in the way that you were describing it implicitly, Asha, like, I think this is an ongoing conversation and I'm not sure where I'll end up at the end of the conversation over the next uh, weeks and months. Um, but on the other hand, um, I think that if we are a nation that is about the rule of law, he has engaged in such extreme, frequent, fundamental violations of criminal law that to let him go scot-free um, without that being looked into an accountability and uh, truth and accountability, I, I, I think that could be very damaging to the country. And we have, and we had an entire investigation with the Mueller report and we have thanks to Andrew Weissman being more explicit and vocal about it, Volume two documents multiple um, ways in which the Mueller team found that the president had committed uh, several crimes of obstruction. And can we, how do, how do we just, how does a justice department that should follow the law and follow the evidence turn, its, turn away from that, I think is um, a profound question. And, on, and then the other part of it is the kind of political calculation about Trump I think a lot of what Asha said is very um, persuasive. That said, um, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of reading uh, Ruth Ben Gayet's book, Strongman. And one of the things she talks about in the early parts of the book are that one of the ways in which a strongman is able to gain great power um, and political support is by appearing as though they are above the law. The law does not apply to them the law and people who abide by the law applies to weaklings. Those are, those are the people who abide by the law. And I think that Trump has succeeded in that. His image as strongman is in part because of that, that uh, the open defiance of the law. So I think uh, justice, that, that's a reason for justice to be heard um, and therefore, and for there to be a true reckoning uh, between his acts and what the legal system is meant to stamp out. Um, he's not above the law. He is actually a weak person and should um, be prosecuted if indeed he committed uh, these grievous crimes is, is the, on the other side of the equation, I guess. And, and, and indeed, the, it's not just a strong man's view. It's, it's also a rich guy's view. Right. The rich guy's view is I have enough lawyers that I can fight this. And, you know, if I'm uh you know, J.P. Morgan, and I'm involved in, you know, massively defrauding the American people, and I ultimately get a $20 billion fine after all the cases, that's the cost of doing business. Um, and that, you know, that's kind of a way a, way a lot of people of the, the, of the ilk of Trump work. I guess what made me think of this um, in this particular case, Asha, is that handing a pardon to somebody like Paxton in exchange for a stunt like this or handing one to Roger Stone or some of the ones that may get handed out to his family or whatever is corrupt. It's illegal. Yes. And if he gets away with that, the precedent is uncomfortable, no? Yes. And I think we do need to uh, categorize Trump's crimes. There's so many that we can create a taxonomy for them. Um, there are the crimes that he committed before he entered office that we know about. This is, for example, Stormy Daniels, individual one. Um, that to my view is maybe 
high on the list of something that should be pursued because it is something that has been investigated where there is already very strong evidence um, against him. It is basically an effort to cheat to obtain the position that is now he's now using to kind of claim this protection or immunity and someone has already gone to jail for it. There, there is a fundamental, I think, uh, injustice and unfairness. If you have a crime that two people committed and one person is then sent to jail and the other person goes free. So I would say that that's kind of on the very high end. Um, I think the obstruction uh, instances uh, with the Russia investigation are also high, though I think you start getting into trickier legal ground because you have some of these Article Two arguments: Can the president obstruct justice? Um, does it start bringing up, you know, whatever the the validity of the Russia pro? I mean, you restart rehashing a lot of things, and maybe some of those things you actually don't want set in stone. I don't know that I want the Supreme Court to decide that the president can't obstruct justice. You know, that's not a great. So I didn't you take know, you for a unitary executive. No, and and so you know, but but that's always the the danger when you start litigating things that involve presidential power because you can set into stone certain things that will then you're stuck with forever. Um, so I think that's more in the iffy ground. Now, some of the stuff with pardons, I think it would be very hard. Like we know they're corrupt at, at a gut intuitive level, but I think to actually investigate and prosecute them as bribery, um, there would be a very high threshold again because of the plenary power of the you know uh, of being able to give pardons and how you would have to get to the state of mind, um, which would be very difficult to do. So that's, that's you know it's I would say in presidential crimes there's there's kind of a, a hierarchy and then there are crimes that we don't even know about yet. Those I think are fully on the table, even if they were committed in the past. So for example, it looks like once he's out of office somebody's going to get his tax returns. And at that point, what we discover about his uh, finances, the Trump organization, bank fraud, tax fraud, all of these things, I think those are completely fair game. Um, and I think actually, ironically, the fact that Hunter Biden is under investigation is actually a green light because I don't think Biden will try to interfere in that. He definitely should not. And that will actually give him the moral authority to step back and say, look, this is, you know, we treat everybody, justice is blind. And, you know, I didn't do anything when my own son was under investigation. This is just, you know, this is up to the FBI and the Justice Department. So my point is that there's a spectrum, I think, and, and certain crimes that might be more deserving and, and might be more open to pursuing. And uh, both the bad thing and the good thing about Trump is he just commits a lot of crime. So I don't think we're ever going to run out of stuff that, you know, he can be investigated for. And I think he's also going to continue criming even after he's out of office. And so those, again, anything he does moving forward, I think will be on the table and certainly will not be covered by any pardon, which would only uh, apply to anything up until January 20th at the most. All right. Well, let me carry that a step further, Ryan. Are there any pardons that he could give out that would make your head explode? Um, In so, other words, yeah, like yeah. he pardons himself. He pardons, you know, so, so, you know, his he tries to give some blanket pardon to his kids for the rest of their lives. What what would make you nuts? What would be the kind of thing where we ought to go? Nope, that's a bridge too far. I think a self pardon is a bridge too far. And, uh, and there's, you know, separate question as to whether it's even constitutionally permissible. Um, and then a blanket pardon for uh, family members, uh, I think, as well. And when I mean blanket pardon, it would read something like the Flynn pardon, which is, you know, for any crimes that they have committed in the past. And then he stands up and he's been, I mean, in some ways he's been working towards this moment. He's, he stands up and says, it's a witch hunt after me and my family. The Obama-Biden crowd has been doing this for as long as they've been in power. I have to do something to protect my family. All he cares about is his base agrees with him and they'll agree with him. So 
I don't think it's out of the question that he might do that, but I think that's a five alarm fire. Yeah, no. By the way, I think a self-pardon would make it incumbent on Biden to, on the Justice Department to test it, which means that they would have to charge him with something. I don't think you could just let that stand and just like, because once it stands, that becomes the precedent and the norm. Um, and, well, so and then the, uh, the whole doctrine of no individual being above the law is over. Exactly. Correct. Basically, you just lie, cheat, and scheme in any way you can to get into the office of the presidency. And then once you get there, you give yourself a get out of jail free card. And that makes totally no sense. Um, and so in, in many ways, if he gives himself a pardon, he is challenging the Justice Department to to indict him. It's like who's it's playing chicken basically with the Justice Department. And I don't know about you. I mean, I think, and I, I bet Bill Barr might even advise him of that if they're still on talking terms, but I, I truly think he's better off if he really wants to protect himself to resign and allow Mike Pence to pardon him. I don't know if he would do that or if Mike, I, mean, I think Mike Pence is a lapdog, he'd do whatever Trump told him, but he could really do that up until the 11th hour. He could do it the day before his term is over and it would be, it would be valid and I think it would be airtight. Yeah, no, it's true. And Pence would do it. You know, he would say, oh, yes, sir. Just as soon as I'm finished licking the bottoms of your shoes, I will immediately give you the pardon that you wanted in my, you know, one hour as president of the United States. Speaking of lapdogs, by the way, you know, we have 101 Dalmatians as a movie about lots of little tiny lapdogs. Uh, 106 Republican House members have just signed on to the amicus brief of the Texas case, um, uh, according to our news sources here, which is to say Twitter. That's 54% of the representatives of the House of, uh, of, of Republicans in the House of Representatives have just signed on to a case that you guys just described as absurd and, and, and ridiculous. And I think it's, you know, I'd love your comment on it, uh, both of you, but I, I think it's relevant to what we were just talking about which is Trump stands up and he says, this election was stolen from me. Everybody knows that. Everybody, you know, 82% or 80% of Republicans believe that. All the people in my party believe that. Uh, if they're willing to steal the election from me, who knows what they'll do to me? I have to protect myself. And, and you know, it, again, the corrosive effects of all this uh, have not been calculated by by a lot of these uh, Republican politicians. And Ryan, do you have a comment on this? Um, yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, there's uh, added to that are 17 uh, attorney generals of 17 different states that have also signed a brief in support of the Texas petition. Um, so he has controlled the party in such a way that this is, it reminds me a lot of what I'm reading in the Ben, in the Ruth yes. Ben Gant book on Strongman. And, and if you look at it as that's the, that's the in some ways that's the uh, subject of analysis is actually the party or the organization. And this is how parties and organizations do begin to function in the rise of fascistic or authoritarian uh, personalities. Um, and her book is as much about the common traits of these strongmen as it is about the people that collaborate with them. And so, it's a very, I, I think it's a very scary moment for the country. And how do we get ourselves out of this? There's also a great piece by James Fellows in the Atlantic about how to prosecute Trump. But he also kind of like what uh, Asha was saying, saying Biden should just step away from that question. It's not his question to answer. And in the end, it's a kind of a mistitled uh, piece because Fellows is saying we should set up commissions. And these are the ways that we can try to tell a story or in, in the right way. And he talks about in another respect, the way that the South told itself a story about the origins of the Civil War that convinced masses of people yeah. over time. And that's why we have Confederate monuments that were put up in the 20th century and things like that. I think we're in a very difficult period that I do worry a lot about how the Biden administration will handle it uh, because they, need to address this. It will be there if it's either Trump in the you know, personification of it or a Trumpist and the people can 
and a Trumpist will in all likelihood rise in the Republican primary for 2024. That will in all likelihood be the winner of the Republican primary, I would think. So that's where we stand. And the fact that we have 106 um, Republican members of the House doing it, I, you know, I, at the same time, I was pleased that the other, whatever it is, 46% <laughs> did not. I immediately looked for Will Hurd's name. He did not sign on to it. Um, so there are reasonable minds. They were only able to get in some ways, you might say a slim majority of Republicans in the House. Um, and I've seen so much, uh, and, and um, just a couple other ones are uh, Senator Cornyn from Texas has said that the petition is looks absurd. He can't even understand the legal theory yeah. behind it. Um, Jeb Bush finally came out saying something like co-tweeting <laughs> Cornyn. So I think there's some other glimmers, but otherwise I think it's a dangerous path. Yeah, to, to go uh, with your strongmen, and by the way, Ruth Ben Giat's book is excellent. Uh, it's called Strongman. I highly recommend <clears throat> recommend it. But I think the best way to understand wh where we are now, and this was true of just the court cases generally, uh, and <clears throat> but I think now with the AGs and and these members of the House, these are loyalty tests. We are seeing the Republican Party being run like a mob organization, and Trump is the Godfather, and he is saying. Uh, he is testing to see who is loyal. And if we were to see our guardrails of democracy fall, the people who are not loyal would be significantly punished. You know, where, where this has actually taken root to its extreme, the people who are not loyal, and you can look at Franco Spain, you can look at uh, <laughs> Mussolini's Italy, you can look at Pinochet's Chile, they get rounded up, tortured, thrown out of, planes and shot in soccer stadiums. Um, this is, you know, where this this kind of behavior goes for right now. And, and I think that makes it all the more just sad and um, disheartening because these people don't really have anything to risk. If, if they don't go along with Trump, they're not going to get a knock on the a door in the middle of the night and have everybody thrown into a van that you'll and you'll never see them again. Um, they're not going to be tortured. They're not going to be killed. They're not going to be hung out, you know, in a public execution. This is they're they're selling their souls for the the I, I guess so they can keep this job that they think that they're entitled to or something. Um, if even if it is if it even is even at risk, but it's a loyalty test. And I think we need to understand each of these moves in that way. I think the question is, will there be enough attrition? Like Ryan just said, Senator Cornyn, you know, are enough of these elites from within the party going to start peeling away and saying enough is enough? Are we gonna get our have you no decency, you know, pivotal moment? I also am curious how much Trump is going to be able to maintain this when he is no longer in office. I personally think that so much of his appeal is coming from the fact that he holds this the office of the presidency. And he may have his followers for a little while, but I just don't know how long he's gonna be able to pull off the con once he's out of office. I really don't. And, and if we look at the strongmen book, you know, most of these people, once they're out of power, they basically become losers. And eventually people pretend that they don't, didn't have anything to do with them. Um, and they, by the way, often get prosecuted, like look at Pinochet who, you know, finally uh, it, it starts to face justice um, in Chile despite giving himself immunity for life. So, you know, I don't know, I think people over inflate Trump's ability to carry this off, uh, you know, indefinitely. Uh, well, I think that may be, it may be true, and that'll depend, of course, to some degree on the on, on whether and how he is uh, prosecuted, what his fortunes are. Otherwise, um, just to wrap up here, we've just got a minute or two. Uh, we seem to be, you know, trundling through Biden's appointment process, um, and. We've had uh, we've got another round of appointments being announced uh, tomorrow, including the 
Dennis McDonough, former chief of staff in the Veterans Administration, Susan Rice, uh, in a kind of surprising development as the um, uh, head of the Domestic Policy Council, despite no domestic policy experience. She certainly knows how to run a council, though. Uh, um, and, And so on. We do not know who the next attorney general is. So much is riding on that decision of what we discussed today. Um, we have a hint that Christopher Ray is going to remain at the FBI, or I, more than a hint. Um, where do you think that stands? And just as a, as, a, as a primer, let's just assume that between now and the next time we're, we're all chatting here together, somebody has picked how would you interpret some of the different choices? I've got you, Ryan, and then you, Ashik, and each for a minute or 90 seconds, and then we'll wrap up. Um, so, yeah, I guess very quickly, going through the names that have been mentioned, uh, if it was Merrick Garland, I think that that is a institutionalist and a moderate in a way that any issues of accountability, I think, are probably off the table, but it's also unknown because he's been serving so, for so long as a judge what would he be like in a very different climate? But I think that would be a sign of just returning to the integrity of, as prime, as the primary purpose, returning the integrity of the Justice Department to its rightful place. Um, Doug Jones, um, I think might actually be similar in kind. I think he's more of an, you know, he's a moderate uh, Democrat. So uh, obviously a strong record in civil rights, which might also suggest certain issues on accountability, but I wouldn't think so. And I. I have to say, I'm a little befuddled by the idea that we'd have on the two, if we drew the shortlist according to the news reports, two white, straight white men again. Um, I find that disappointing given that there are eminently qualified women um, who could be in that position, uh, like Lisa Monaco and Sally Yates as just examples of it. And that also goes to the question, uh, the Secretary of Defense to some degree, um, though that's more complicated. So I think those two would signal a certain path. Sally Yates would signal a very different path and a real fight uh, in the nomination. And I don't think Biden's looking for any fights in the, no- <laughs> uh, in the nominations. Um, and uh, so I think that's, and I would put Lisa Monaco also in the same similar category of uh, Garland and uh, Jones. Asha. Yeah, I think that it's really important for whoever comes in to almost be someone no one has heard of. (laughs) Just because I think we're grappling so much with public perception of DOJ. So for example, for that reason, though, in my personal opinion, Sally Yates is a rock star, I think it could be detrimental um, just because there is, there's so much you know, narrative association um, that comes with her, uh, you know, particularly in her role in the previous administration would say the Flynn investigation and all, you know, I think we want to lessen all the opportunities to create, you know, these deep state narratives, right? Um, I also think what Ryan said about having a woman lead the Justice Department is, you know, important. Um, And, you know, I personally think Lisa Monaco would be fantastic. I think she fits that bill. I don't know that most people know about her. She also comes with extensive national security experience. And I think especially given that one of the challenges is going to be dealing with the counterintelligence threat and also a lot of the objections about FISA and these tools that we've used and things like that, I think having someone who comes in with that kind of background and who understands those issues will be incredibly important. So i I personally, when I saw her name being floated, I was very excited. Um, I'm not really sure. I, you know, I'm not a political watcher. I don't know where she stands now on the short list. Um, but she, she would be my top pick for the reasons that I mentioned. That well, it's interesting uh, because I, I think Biden has shown very little appetite to get into confirmation battles, with the possible exception of the near attendant appointment, which is somewhat controversial for ridiculous reasons. Um, uh, and so I think he's likely to go for a less controversial pick and following today's McDonough and Susan Rice, um, 
um, picks, uh, you know, the department looks a lot like the Obama White House. It would not be would not be out of keeping with that to see Lisa Monaco crop up, although um, Doug Jones kind of has the political profile of that that overlaps with Trump's comfort zone. I agree. I think a little more diversity in these choices would be beneficial uh, simply to, you know, broaden, broaden the field. But, you know, we, we shall, we shall see where this all goes. Um, And we will have plenty of time to debate whether having Obama 2.0 is actually a good idea or, or not a good idea. Um, We shall certainly see how that unfolds. Um, I should say, of course, those of you noticed that Kavita did not show up, that in sort of the big news as we were doing this at precisely the wrong time to have her show up, um, the, uh, the FDA panel has recommended approving the Pfizer drug, which could mean um, uh, that they could start, they could approve it and start administering it to um, uh healthcare workers and some high-risk patients as early as Sunday or Monday. Oh, wow. Um, now, having said that, there are issues about the number of doses that are available. And it may be that it's six months or longer before they can deploy enough doses to have the kind of effect on the pandemic that we expect. And nothing that they do is likely to significantly reduce uh, the next two months as as periods of really grievous loss. And four days this week have been among the uh, eight or 10 worst days of, of, of death tolls in American history. Uh, uh, yesterday's uh, COVID death toll, 3,100, exceeds the death toll on 9-11 and also that on Pearl Harbor. Uh, so with, this is a, a serious issue. We'll return to it. Uh, uh, next week when Kavita is back with us. Uh, But in the meantime, thank you guys for really interesting discussion on some complex, uh, uh, fascinating issues that are not going to go away anytime soon. So Asha, hope you will come back again and visit us sometime soon. Ryan, we'll see you again next week. And everybody else, uh, join us again. Join us at the dsrnetwork.com for more information about what we're doing. Uh, We've got some special guests coming up next week. uh, so uh, keep an eye out. We'll have we'll have a couple special episodes. Um, and uh, in the meantime, everybody, stay healthy. Bye bye.